This podcast is a production of Journey, a church community inspiring people to live big. For more information, please visit cincyjourney.org. No, you're not confused. Last week, Steve Carney began as a new interim pastor, but he had already had something scheduled for this Sunday. He's at a revival at another church. And so we brought in our number one pinch hitter uh, to speak with us. Dale French is our lead pastor, lead elder for the Southwest Ohio District. And he is coming today. He's been here before to preach for us and often also sometimes pops in to see how we're doing. So Dale, come and bring God's message to us. Thank you, Woody. Appreciate you asking me to be here, and thank you for always being warm and welcoming when I come. <clears throat> Excuse me. When Woody contacted me a few weeks ago, I um, began right away asking God what he wanted me to say today. Of course, you guys have been on my heart and in my prayer list for the last several months, and I know that in the situation in which you find yourself um, God began to draw my heart toward the story of Elijah the prophet in 1 Kings chapter 19. And we'll go there in just a moment on the screen. But um, as I began to think about that, I thought about the story of Elijah's life. You know, Elijah is the big name prophet in the Old Testament. He's the one that represents all the prophets of God in the Bible. And even when Jesus went on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses showed up on one shoulder and Elijah was on the other side representing the law and the prophets and all that God had been doing in the history of Israel and Jesus bringing all of that together to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who would bring the kingdom of God into our presence. And um, I thought about Elijah. You know, he's the big name prophet. He's the big event guy. Elijah was the one, if you look at just prior to the chapter we're going to be in this morning, it's that huge challenge, that contest that took place on Mount Carmel. And Elijah, being the prophet of God and the people of God, had, had wandered away from God. As a matter of fact, the reason they wandered was because King Ahab had married a woman named Jezebel. Please don't ever name any of your children Jezebel. Um, she represented a pagan idolatry. And she brought that in. Now, Ahab married her because of political alliances, because it was to his advantage to have peace with nations around him. And, and uh, when, you know, a lot of times that still happens with alliances around the world. But in those days especially, they would marry and intermarry in order to get, get a hold of fortunes and get a hold of resources and in order to have political peace and, and to get along as nations, they would have treaties. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to be um, attacking your family members when you're uh, trying to live at peace with those around you. But she represented this pagan idolatry that began to permeate Israel, and it was the very thing that Moses had warned them about when they started to go into the Promised Land. He said, if you will obey God and follow Him, you will be blessed. But if you won't, you're going to fall away, and you're going to have miserable time. And so God was working on getting the attention of the people of Israel, and Ahab the king he didn't know what he got himself into. He, he got to the place where he was actually afraid of his wife Jezebel. She was a mean sort of person. And she was a power-hungry person. And she was a pagan, and so she would do anything she had to to keep that power. She would do anything she had to to hold on to the sovereignty and to maintain control. 
And leading people into pagan idolatry kept her in charge. And so she would do that at all costs. And when Elijah, who was the prophet of God, saw this fading away of people and, and this, this struggle to keep God at the center of their lives and losing the blessing of God on their very, their very lives and their very country, he called for a challenge and he, and he went before the king and he went before the people and he said, look, I, I, you've got to decide today where you're going to come down. Who are you going to worship? Who are you going to live for? What's your life going to mean and uh, he challenged the prophets of, of the false god Baal, and, and on Mount Carmel was the place where this contest took place. And the contest was basically, see which god has the power to answer by fire. And we always associate Elijah with fire. We associate him with the fire on Mount Carmel. We associate him with the fact that he was one of the, the two people in the Old Testament that did, did not die. God actually took him in a fiery chariot and took him right straight to heaven. Um, and so he's the God of fire. He's the God of the big event. He's the God of the miraculous and the mountaintop experiences. And yes, he defeated those prophets because they, they set up their altars and they put their sacrifice on the altars and they, they went through their rituals and, and he even let them go first and he, they took most of the day. They had the longest worship service in history, I think, trying to get their God to answer and nothing happened. And in the, in, the, in the time of the late afternoon sacrifice, Elijah came and built his altar as God had prescribed it in the Old Testament, um, and he put the sacrifice on and the wood on, and he, not only did he do that, but he had them pour several barrels of water over, dug a trench around it, filled it up so that it was just soaking wet, dripping wet. And remember that God had tried to get a hold of Ahab and the people of God's attention because now it has been over three years that there's been no rain in Israel. Elijah went to Ahab three years earlier and said, hey, God's not happy with you. And because of that, he's going to stop the rains and he's going to put a drought on us and a famine's going to come and he's going to break you down, Ahab. You better pay attention. But they didn't do that. So Mount Carmel is one of those places that's a beautiful, lush place in, in Israel, in the northern part of Israel, and it would be one of the places where they could get water in that time, even though there'd been a drought for over three years. And he poured the water over that altar, and he simply prayed. He didn't dance around. He didn't sing a bunch of songs. He didn't go into chants. He didn't cut himself. He didn't get crazy. You know, he, he just prayed. And in less than a minute of prayer, he said, God, I know who you are but these people need to remember who you are. Would you just show up? <laughs> Would you just do what you alone can do? And the fire fell from heaven, and that fire not only consumed the altar and the wood, or the, the sacrifice in the wood, but it consumed the stones of the altar, licked up all the water, and immediately the people bowed down and said, yes, God is God, he's the real God. And so Elijah told the people to kill all those 450 prophets of the false idol God, and they did that. And so it was a great victory, and, and, and it was a wonderful thing that God showed himself to those people. But the problem was that as soon as Ahab got home, he told Jezebel about that. And the first thing she did was send out a notice to Elijah saying, you killed all my prophets, and I'm going to kill you. you got 24 hours to live. And so Elijah, this great prophet of God, this powerful man who was the man of fire, and the man of the miraculous event ran away. And this is one of the things I want us to see is that Satan has some tools in his tool belt 
And one of those tools that he uses all the time against us as the people of God is discouragement. He uses that against us right after something great happens in our lives. He catches us on the way down from the mountain and says, you didn't really enjoy that. That's really not going to last. I'm going to get you by the time you get to the valley. And unfortunately, we live in valleys. I mean, that's our lives. That's where we are. We find ourselves in the dailiness of life, in the everyday things of life. And Elijah was no different than us. Even though he was a great prophet of God, I want you to see that in the Bible, the people that God uses are not great people. They're people just like us. It's God who makes them great. It's God who uses us and changes our circumstances and takes the gifts that we offer to him and makes us into great people and makes us into influential people. So let's look at that, at that uh, scripture in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 9, 19. So Ahab reports to Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, including the massacre of the prophets. Immediately, she sent a messenger to Elijah with her threat. The gods will get you for this, and I'll get even with you. By this time tomorrow, you'll be as dead as any one of those prophets. When Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Beersheba, far in the south of Judah. He's going from the northern part of Israel all the way down to the bottom. He left his young servant there and then went on into the desert another day's journey. He is making sure he is out of sight. He came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade, wanting in the worst way to be done with it all to just die. And he's praying to the Lord now, enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. I give up, God. I'm done. But he was exhausted from that trip, so he fell asleep under the broom bush. And then suddenly an angel shook him awake and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and to his surprise, right by his head were a loaf of bread baked on some coals and a jug of water. So he ate the meal, went back to sleep. The angel of God came back, shook him awake again, and said, get up and eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. So he got up, ate and drank his fill, and set out. Nourished by that meal, he walked 40 days and 40 nights, all the way to the mountain of God, to Horeb, or that's also Mount Sinai. When he got there, he crawled into a cave and went to sleep. Then the word of God came to him. So Elijah, what are you doing here? I've been working my heart out for the God of the angel armies, said Elijah. Man, I've been doing what you told me to do. I've, I've been living up to my calling. The people of Israel have abandoned your covenant. They've destroyed the places of worship. They've murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Then he was told, go stand on the mountain at attention before God, because God will pass by. So a hurricane wind ripped, wind ripped through the mountains and shattered the rocks before God, but God wasn't to be found in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a gentle and quiet whisper. And when Elijah heard the quiet voice, he muffled his face with his great cloak, went to the mouth of the cave and stood there. And a quiet voice asked him this question again. So Elijah, now tell me, what are you doing here? And Elijah gave him the story again. I've been working my heart out for God, the God of the angel armies, because the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant. They've destroyed your places of worship. They've murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. God said, go back the way you came through the desert to, to Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, make him king over Aram. Then anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, and make him king over Israel. And finally, anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, from Abel-Maholah, 
to succeed you as prophet. Anyone who escapes death by Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and anyone who escapes death by Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Meanwhile, I'm preserving for myself 7,000 souls, the knees that haven't bowed to the god Baal, the mouths that haven't kissed his image. I think about that. I think about that, that quiet whisper of God and how the showdown on Mount Carmel leads us from victory to defeat or discouragement, but also how Mount Carmel leads us to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is actually Mount Sinai, the place where Moses received the Ten Commandments. It's in the Sinai Desert. It's a long journey. It took him 40 days to get there. And God gave him that supernatural strength to get there. He let him have the rest that he needed, and he prepared him for that journey. And I want to return to that 40 days um, as we close today. But think about the cave that he crawled into on Mount Sinai. The Hebrew says the cave. Uh, Scholars believe that perhaps it was the same place where God put Moses in the cleft of the rock as he passed by and showed Moses his glory so many years before. So Elijah, again, meets God on God's mountain, and and there's a renewal of the covenant. There's a renewal of of the call. And it's that gentle and quiet whisper that causes Elijah to come forward and come out to the the mouth of the cave. And I, I like the part that it says he put his cloak over his face, which reminds me, and I think it symbolizes the idea of humility and being, being teachable and being willing to submit himself to God. He covers his face to go listen to the whisper voice of God. And then God says, go back the way you came and anoint two kings and the prophet who will succeed you and then... I will take care of the rest. I want to tell you this morning that God encouraged Elijah. He he reassured him. He, He brought him back and he said, listen, I'm not done with you. I want to tell you this morning, God's not done with you. Whatever the next steps might be, God is not done with you. God is not finished with our witness. God is not finished with our faithfulness. God is not finished with our gifts being operated in the kingdom. God wants to do something great in your lives, individually, families, and corporately. God wants to do something. It's a matter of whether or not we are ready to step up and do what he asks us to do. So Elijah was encouraged by God. He, he, he said, you know, be remember, remember the things. Look, he was defeated, depressed, and discouraged. And, and he says, I'm the only one left. And you notice that the answer didn't change. What are you doing here, Elijah? Man, and he starts his list. Have you ever done that? You ever told God your list of complaints? And, and sometimes, you know, when I've done that, sometimes God stops me and says, um, just stop, just stop. Do you think I can handle all those things? Well, and then I start in again. Well, God, but you need to hear what I got to say. I mean, I'm, I'm upset about this, and this is bothering me, and it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to turn out. And, and he says, stop, just stop. Do you believe I can handle that? Do you believe I'm big enough to solve those problems? Do you believe if you turn those over to me, I can take care of them? And that's what Elijah needed to learn He was the prophet of the big event. He had seen God move. He had seen God show up in mighty ways. But now it's that quiet whisper voice of God that says, Elijah, do you trust me? 
Do you trust me when I don't show up in the fire? Do you, show, do you trust me when I don't show up in the earthquake? Do you trust me when I don't show up in the great winds? Do you, show, do you trust me in the valleys as well as the mountaintops? Because I'm still the same God. I haven't changed a bit. I'm still the same God, and I still have my plan, and I'm still on the throne, and I want you not to... Real, I want you to realize that you are not in charge of your own life. You are not in control of what happens here. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're not the center of attention. Elijah had gotten used to being the big guy on campus. He'd gotten used to being the one everybody looked to. And actually, Ahab messes up when he tells Jezebel what happened on Mount Carmel. Because what he does is instead of attributing it to the power of God, he says, Elijah did all this. Elijah killed your prophets. Elijah did the contest. Elijah did all that. He didn't give God glory where he needed to give God glory. Not that it would have changed any of Jezebel's response. But Ahab was was also lost in that. Elijah needed to hear the reassuring voice of God that says, Listen, you're not alone. I can handle the next chapter of your life. He reassured him and reframed his perspective. He said, Elijah, you're not by yourself. You miscalculated. You're you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at the circumstances. You're not looking at me. You're looking at what, what has happened around you and what other people's responses are. Instead of looking at what I want you to do, there are 7,000 people who haven't worshiped the idol God. And I'm holding them next to my heart. You're not alone, Elijah. And there are people still in Israel who depend upon you being obedient to me. They need your witness. They need your faithfulness, Elijah. They need you to stop crying in your own milk. And get up and do what I ask you to do. Elijah, the day will come when I will bring you home to myself, but it's not today. The day will come when you'll be brought into heaven and in the presence of God, but it's not today. Today I need you. Today I need you to go back the way you came. And I think when he told him to go back the way he came, he's saying revisit where you've been, reflect on where you've been, and rejoice with what God has done in your ministry. Rejoice with those 7,000 people. Rejoice with those people who have not bowed the knee to a false god. Rejoice with the people that your messages have reached. Rejoice with the people who have been true to me and who are staying true and you're encouraging them. I want to tell you this morning, no matter what takes place in the next steps of the life of Journey Church, in your individual lives, in your family, and corporately as a body, no matter what takes place next, God is in control. God's on the the throne, and we need to be on the altar. God is where he needs to be, or we where we need to be. Elijah needed to get that whisper voice of God through his head and through his heart that he was still being used by God even though things weren't turning out the way he thought they would turn out. People are fickle. We know that. People are always looking for the next better thing, the fads and fancies of our world. I mean, just, just look this last couple of weeks at, at the, the 
um, unveiling of iPhone 11. It's driven, every, driven everybody crazy, right? Everybody wants the next generation. Everybody wants the next best thing. We want the biggest, best, brightest. When what we really need is a God who anchors us. A God who holds us in the palm of his hand. And who uses us where we are with the gifts that we have. And takes our witness and takes our faithfulness and walks us day by day through our lives. I want to tell you this morning that it's not the mountaintop experiences. It's not the miraculous events that develop deep discipleship in our lives and the lives of those around us. And we've had those great experiences. We've had those mountaintop experiences. And, and, and we enjoy the times that God has shown up and brought healing and, and people have been saved and there's, there's been rejoicing because of the celebration of baptisms and, and the times of people coming to the kingdom of God and seeing people grow in their discipleship and, and become more and more like Christ and reach out to other people and bring other people to Christ. Those are wonderful experiences and we need to celebrate those. But it's not the big events that makes disciples. It's the daily Whisper of God conversations that we speak by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Those are the things that helps us grow. Those are the things that lead others along the path of lifelong devotion to Christ. Even as we celebrate the great moments, we realize that it has been our steady presence, our faithful witness, and our love for people in the everyday relationships that makes an eternal difference in our lives, in their lives. No matter what happens next, God loves you. He's still in control. The kingdom still needs your witness and your faithfulness, and you can trust God for the next chapter. And that's exactly what God was telling Elijah. Go, go back the way you came and do these things. Get ready for the next chapter. Get ready for the next saga that's going to take place. Anoint this one king in this nation. Anoint this one king in this nation. Anoint Elisha to be your successor. And I will handle the next chapter, God says. Do you trust me to handle the next chapter? So here's my challenge to you today. Coming back to that 40-day journey. 40 days is a, is a pretty significant uh, number in the, church, in the, in the Bible. Um, the flood was for 40 days and 40 nights. It rained. It took 40 days to embalm Joseph in Egypt. The 12 spies spent 40 days in reconnaissance of the promised land before they actually entered in. Uh, obviously, because the people didn't have faith to enter in, God made them stay in 40 years in the desert, one for every, a year for every day of the 40-day reconnaissance. Jonah preached in Nineveh that 40 days and Nineveh would fall if they didn't repent. And Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days is significant in the Bible. So here's my challenge to you. And I'm going to ask it in the form of a question, and I'm going to let you decide if you will take up the challenge. And that is, what if, what if you as a group choose to travel together for the next 40 days, seeking God's desire for the next chapter in your lives? What if the next 40 days is used to go back the way you came? In other words, to pray and reflect and listen and open yourselves. Remember what God has done at Journey Church over the years. Reflect on how he has shown up. Revisit the times that you have celebrated and, and lives that have been changed and gone out into the community because of this church. What has God done in your lives? And I believe that God will show you what he has for the next chapter 
for individuals, for families, and perhaps even corporately as a body here. I believe God wants to do something significant. So what would happen if you would choose to journey those 40 days? And I want to make you an offer. I want to make you an offer that if you choose to journey those 40 days in prayer and reflection, as you make decisions in the days coming, if you'll let me, I'll journey that with you. I'll pray with you. I will continue to study the Word and see what God shows for all of us as we move forward as a district, as congregations, as individuals, as families. What if God wants to use some of you or all of you as a core group to start something new that is a completely different model of how we do church in the community in which we find ourselves? I have no answers for that. It's just on my heart. It's on my mind. It's in my spirit. I don't know what that looks like, but maybe together we can find out how that could work and what it will play out. So I'm going to close in just a moment, but as we, as we leave this morning, um, I want to challenge you. If you will choose to journey those 40 days, just come and see me and let me know that you're going to journey together and we'll go together on that journey. It'll take you from now to the end of November, if we start tomorrow, and we'll see what God wants to do. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you, God, that you have a, you have a grasp of all of our needs and concerns. I thank you, God, that you know what you're doing and we can trust you with the next chapter of our lives. Like Elijah, Lord, I know that Satan wants to use discouragement to stop us, to trip us up, to make us fall down, to make us run away, to make us give up. God, help us not to allow that to control our lives and our choices in the days ahead. God, I pray that you will... Simply allow us to submit ourselves like Elijah did to the whisper voice of God. Teach us, lead us, show us, and we'll give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.